Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Hello, everybody. Welcome again to another edition of the NCHD Paramedic Podcast. This is Dr. Casey Patrick, and joining me today is our medical director, Rob Dixon. Good afternoon, Casey. And we have one of our district chiefs here at MCHD, Spencer Hall. Thanks for joining me, Spencer. Thanks for having me. And this is another episode in our Monday morning quarterback series. I initially went tales from the ED after our recording yesterday. Dr. Dixon took and played the trump card and said, hey, we want to call this Monday morning quarterback. And for those that haven't listened to one of these episodes before, Dr. Dixon and I do the same thing we've really done since since residency when we reconvene on Monday mornings. Both of us usually work weekend shifts and talk about our cool ED cases. And with both of us working in the county now more, we have more interaction with our crews, which makes those stories even more viable and important because not only is it our successes and failures and screw-ups, but it's our interactions with our crews and our protocols and our medical direction. So no better case to learn from. And today's case was was Chief Hall's, and it really was serendipitous in a lot of ways because, number one, it scared the crap out of me, and those cases are always valuable because it makes you rethink every single step in difficult decision-making pathways, no matter what it is, whether it's a unstable bradycardia or an unstable airway or an unstable tox case those those put yourself to the test sort of situations to me are always valuable both during and after the fact and secondly we just released an episode fairly recently talking about the differences between loss of airway protection and loss of airway patency and this case was that discussion really wrapped in a nutshell. So without giving any more away, Chief Hall, take the take the case from from start for you for y'all. It was you and and one of our in charges. How did the call come out? You know, dispatch uh, CAD notes. What did you guys see once you got on scene? What was some of your decision making points along the way? And then I'll take from when this patient became mine. Fair enough. So it was a weekend. Um, it was a bright sunny dry day uh, a perfect motorcycle riding day so it was middle of the city which is about two miles from where dr patrick's working at conroe and we got called for a single motorcycle accident um, not much uh, call notes other than patient was down on the ground the call got updated that he was unconscious so that pulled me in addition to the ambulance a battalion chief and an engine um, crew got on scene, verbalized urgent patient, immediately recognized altered mental status secondary to an unhelmeted motorcycle wreck. The bystanders on scene said that he was driving his motorcycle, came into a curve, and just skidded out. Um, bike came out from under him. Bike went one way. He went the other way, head first into the curb. Um, the bike bounced off the opposite curb and then kind of pinned his head into the curb for a second impact. Uh, crew got there. Um saw altered mental status i got there a little bit after them uh, he was not combative um, but he was clearly confused um, eye-opening to pain um, he had a patent airway no blood or secretions in his airway um, clear lung sounds mildly hypertensive and once we put him on oxygen he was about 93 on room air um, got him in the truck made sure there was no major life threats no bleeding um, lung sounds were clear 
got vascular access and realized, hey, we're a mile and a half or two miles away from a level two trauma center. So we came to y'all. So we'll pause there and let's walk through some of those actions that are that were really vital from my standpoint, because that's the the radio report that I got. The GCS was was fluctuating and we, we could talk a little more about GCS as we move along. We talked about that pretty extensively in the in the patency versus protection podcast in that even GCS agreement between emergency physicians ain't that great. You know, so if you and I see the same patient, we only have a 50 50 shot of coming up with the same GCS. So whether or not it was eight, six, 10, this was clearly unhelmeted traumatic brain injury. We rapid scene time from the EMS standpoint, access placed while en route, not delaying scene time. SATs were maintained in the nineties. GCS was somewhere in that eight to 10 range, uh, pretty, pretty confidently. And at the end of the radio report was he's got a, a non-rebreather on. Mm-hmm. So that's what all of us in the nurse's station said, oh, he's not intubated. Oof. So it was a, a, a trauma activation from our standpoint on the hospital side. But realistically, all the necessary check boxes were in place from a pre-hospital standpoint. Would you agree? Yeah, I agree completely. I mean, I think this goes right back. This plays perfectly into the protection versus patency, right? And I won't steal all the thunder from that one. So I think it was an, it's an important question. Definitely. But it's one of those hard questions, isn't it, Chief, that there is no black and white answer that one size fits all. There's no number. There's no one thing that's going to, you know, kind of push you. It's it's really the entire patient. So it's the, the anticipated course. Mm-hmm. It's what does his airway look like? It's patent there. He's breathing on his own. Mm-hmm. You can get his oxygenation to a sustainable level. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd say that's a good call there to transport that guy tell a little bit more about his body habitus and what this fellow looked like let's, the, let's say the, let's say gonna that we're gonna the, say the that it's gonna thicken okay. on this we're one gonna guys. say that um let's talk about some evidence and yeah let's talk about why why it's so important that chief hall minded his oxygen and checked his blood pressure mind his blood pressure talk can you talk about the epic study sure before i mean before we get there in a traumatic brain injury patient the question is does the patient have airway protection? Does the patient have airway patency? And we've gone over that, but for quick review, soiled airways, smashed airways, strider, sonorous, singed hair, singed oral pharynx. Those are the S's from our patency podcast. So he obviously wasn't a burn. There was no upper airway swelling to cause strider. The big ones are sonorous and sonorous and uh, soiled from a vomiting standpoint schmutz yeah and so and so chief hall very eloquently just described his airway was patent he didn't have vomit in his airway he didn't have sonorous respirations you know they were able to oxygenate fine with a with a non-rebreather so that's where the epic study comes into play epic was in annals in 2017 the original epic spate at all there's been several offshoots from epic and different parts and pieces, but the gist of the original study looked at moderate to severe traumatic brain injuries in Arizona, very robust uh, trauma registry there. And they found that for those GCSs of 10 or less, for the most part, this gentleman fit perfectly. An episode in EMS care of hypotension, single episode, less than 90, four times increase in mortality, single episode of hypoxia, less than 90% while in EMS care six times increase in mortality. And when you had 
the unfortunate few in that group that had hypotension and hypoxia 13 times increase in mortality. These were single episodes, 90% or less oxygenation, 90 millimeters mercury or less systolic pressure. So we know in TBI patients, hypoxia and hypotension is, is lethal, especially the combination of the two. So when Chief Hall looked at this patient and said, hey, we're on a, a non-rebreather, he came in 95, 96, systolic was 160. We've, we've stabilized as much as we need to stabilize. So let me be the devil's advocate and say, well, you know, doc, this patient's going to get intubated in the ED, right? Is the patient not going to get intubated? Talk about that, Chief Hall. So I think that plays into knowing your operational area, right? Um, what capabilities you have near you, uh, the personnel on scene, and how far, like I said, how far away are you actually from your trauma center? I think this call would have been totally different um, in North Willis we had more time for his disease process and his injury pattern to progress to potentially um, the need for innovation or the need for us to intervene before he decompensated. Right, and tell a little bit more about the patient's physical exam. <laughs> Get, go to the secondary survey, Chief. Okay, so um, he was about six foot tall, but he was about 300, 325 pounds. He was large. He, he seemed closer to six and a <laughs> half to me. Yeah. I, I don't know how tall he was. He looked like he would duck through the doorway and shimmy through the doorway. He's just a just a very very yeah. big man. Did y'all um, did y'all agree on scene yourself and the in charge? We did, we did. Um, actually, it was kind of a nice scene. The aspect that I had an in charge and a captain. On oh, one, excellent! On, on one truck. Wow. So it was. It was, it was a lucky day. Yeah, it was lucky. So no one was, was no one was cheering for the tube in the field. No, that's no. No. it was nice and. That that's not always the case, uh, and and I don't know that, I don't know that they would have necessarily been wrong. But when you take into context, just like you said, a mile away, just humongously large individual. Yes, he absolutely will get intubated in the ED. So it comes back to me as well, Doc. You you think the ED docs intubate better than the medics, or you don't want the medics to intubate, or you know, all that line of thinking. And as I was prepping, and I was quite thankful that Chief Hall was beside me helping me prep because of all the folks in the room, as far as a resuscitation prior to intubation and a delayed sequence process, I had an expert standing beside me. It was uh, quite convenient. I just looked around and sort of took in the scene and thought this has nothing to do with whether Chief Hall or I are better intubators. This has to do with what's best for the patient. And I don't know that I want to enter that competition. I, I think I've got even odds with you, but <laughs> I, uh, I, that's not what this is about. This is not about an ego thing. I looked and I had my emergency department partner was in the room. Trauma surgeon was in the room. Trauma APP was in the room, respiratory therapist, along with a couple techs and nurses. So you've got a crew of 10 to 12 with a surgeon standing there that can literally trach the patient if things go south, as opposed to a crew of two or three on the scene with just drastically less resources. Now, you put that patient in Dobbin or in North Willis, and it is absolutely a different story. Agreed. That's no where question. clinical course comes in, right? What's the anticipated clinical course of this guy? I'll just tell you right off the bat, right? Not good. 
right, not good. He's likely mm -hmm. going to get worse. I agree with you completely, Chief. Totally different decision if you're in the northwest part of the county or no far up north in Montgomery or, or up in Willis. Or for your listeners out there, if you're in a situation to where you don't have trauma ED access, it may be a different decision for you if you're on a flight crew everybody in this room on this episode today has flown i would have intubated this patient prior to lifting off oh completely i don't care where we're going or what's going on this patient gets a definitive airway before we before we get in the air i would not want to fight that gentleman yeah he, he, he cannot season he cannot come combative at a thousand feet that's then, not gonna go you know, i love the way you guys set this up because you're always talking about other casts and going back to kind of review right that's what we do so we can remember stuff we go back and review but you know it's dr patrick when he, he had chief hall in the room and they're getting the guy set up what's he talk about talks about the bundle of care for dsi right talks that's about right. the rule of 15s and pre-oxing which sometimes some of our colleagues in the emergency department it, it doesn't translate. you got to really spell it out the why of why are we doing this? Why do you set it up like this? So I, I think that's really cool. It's a, it's a teachable moment for everyone, uh, you know, out of an everyday occurrence. What's so great about working in the county with our medics? Yeah, and we don't, you know, we, we spend all of our time as medical directors thinking of ways and working on methods to really ingrain the idea of delayed sequence intubation and resuscitation before intubation that's been a majority of our time over the last five years six years and if you were an emergency physician that trained in 2012 2010 2007 like me resuscitation before intubation at dsi wasn't a concept mm -hmm. so while this is in our front brains as emergency physicians a big push and the reason why it is in our front brain is because of our desire and the the whole organizational MCHD push to make DSI accepted standard of care. But that's that's not always the case in the ED. And it was just it was pretty cool to look over and I kind of. I know what you know. Like we know what we're doing here. So it Let's check like the boxes. It sounds like a total nightmare, guys. Like, give me the gory details. What happened? It ended up not being a so nightmare. So it was nightmare. like a nothing burger? No, it was, it was as smooth. <laughs> Spencer says yes, it was a nothing burger. Smooth as silk. He nailed it. Yeah, it was, it was single pass. This is all Dr. Patrick. Single pass, no hypoxia. No, it just wasn't a difficult airway. There was nothing right. nothing magical about it. I, at the point of inserting the blade, I was like, man, there's a lot of people watching. I can't really... I can't palm this one, but cores were visible. It, it, it wasn't difficult. That said, all airways are disasters until proven otherwise. This gentleman had some big-time warning signs from his acute trauma and potential for soiled airway that maybe we couldn't appreciate from his body habitus and his size, his neck. We had to... You know, yeah, main, a big beard, too, right? Yeah, a big beard that may have made it difficult to bag him. Yeah, maintain inline, all those things that go along with it, but... We managed to prevent any hypotension. He got rapid head CT with bilateral subdurals and subarachnoids, not shocking. He had some pelvic fractures and some other minor, uh, relatively minor traumatic injury. The majority of his injury was traumatic brain injury. So what did we do for him? That was a, a quick call to the neurosurgeon. This needs rapid decompression, and that happened very quickly, probably within a half an hour, 45 minutes. It was it was pretty wow. pretty quick. He was off to the OR. He got a big slug of mannitol while we were waiting and admitted to the trauma ICU. So it, I don't have the final outcome at this point, but from an EMS transition to 
the emergency department transitioned to acute neurosurgical acute trauma care it was pretty seamless and it really encapsulated exactly what we discussed in the patency versus protection podcast and some of those distances and patient size some of those factors that don't go into the textbook can never go into the protocol they really were illustrated well in this case and i was just pumped to get to do it with chief hall and get to have uh, our crews do exactly what they were taught to make those difficult decisions and to see a positive outcome and it really goes back to just because you can do something doesn't mean that you should and in that situation you could have made an argument to intubate that guy had he been incredibly difficult with bizarre anatomy or difficult anatomy or blood in the airway from from his fractures got hypoxic in the field well you've just increased his mortality six times as opposed to the decision pathway that you took mm-hmm. we gave him the best shot as possible now he's got a he's got to deal with the fact that he got his head pinned between the curb and the motorcycle and that's going to be a difficult road no matter how you slice it our job is just not to put any more roadblocks in his way definitely yeah and i think this really illustrates the point too i i think casey would agree with me a lot of cases we review here um you know when the medic starts off doc i was just around the corner from the hospital (laughs) you know it's something they either a were nervous about doing or b didn't want to do and my stock answer to that is don't don't deny an intervention that you can do safely mm-hmm. in a patient that's not a, a great excuse not to do x right? right that being said the way i should have said that historically is i should have added if it's in the patient's best interest and i think in this case sometimes withholding and just holding where you're at is the best thing for the patient so I've kind of revised the way that I talk to medics. When, when I have that discussion, I go, gosh, guys, you, you were over here. What was the thought process? So well, I was right around the corner from the, the ED. I actually shut up for a minute and listen and go, tell me about your thought process then. And if it benefits the patient, I think they're right there. It's okay to withhold. It's okay. Another example we had in, in trauma conference was a, a clearly smashed face, facial injury. Mm-hmm. Guy was awake but a little bit somnolent and vomiting and kind of bleeding, but he had a clearly mid-facial fractures and broken jaw and broken teeth, and it looked to the the medic there like it was just going to be potentially a surgical airway, uh, just a catastrophe, and it was close. It was in the city, and so they made the decision, right? Let him, if we can handle his secretions, Mm -hmm. he's not hypoxic, he's not hypotensive, Let's get in the room and call ahead where we can have someone there who can very adeptly place the surgical airway. You know, we have backups. We have video laryngoscopy. They have anesthetic backup in the room. And sometimes this is like any difficult decision. I want to wrap up with this thought because this is an important one to, to jump off from what you just said. And that is so often this is presented as high flow diesel versus stay in play. Mm-hmm. And it couldn't be more complicated. It's so much more complicated it is than complicated. that. And no, we're not advocating for, oh, they just they just want to scoop and run. You know, they just want high-flow diesel. If it's in the best interest, then absolutely I want high-flow diesel. But that's there's no binary there. It's much more nuanced. Mm-hmm. Much, much, much more thought went into your decision-making than scoop this guy and run. 
you looked and you thought, what's does he have any other life threats? D- does he have breath sounds on both sides? Do we need to consider a needle thoraco- a needle thoracostomy? Mm-hmm. Does he, um, you know, is he hypotensive? How big is he? How close are we? Who's here on scene with me? And there's no randomized controlled trial. But if I tackle a difficult airway and I've got a partner or two on the street and I recreate that and tackle a difficult airway with eight or nine people in the room, including surgical backup and anesthesia upstairs, when are you going to have better outcomes for the patient? I, I don't think we need a randomized controlled trial to test that. That's no knock against paramedic. That's no knock against the emergency doctor. That's not a, a one's better than the other kind of thing. It's just a fact of circumstance, and mm-hmm. it's how that situation works out based on where your office is and where my office is, and they're in two different spots, and sometimes we get to share the room, and it's pretty cool. So I, I enjoyed case, this case. Yeah, I thought this was, it was a good yeah, – I flew high for a couple of weeks after that one. I just thought it was cool to take everything we talk about, to take our people – and to really apply it to a, to a patient here in the county, here in the district, give them the best chance that we could. So what are the take-home points? Prevent hypoxia and hypotension in TBI. The key in that sentence is prevent it. You know, put, even if it's SATs or 95 on room air, put him on a non-rebreather. This is a situation where we don't want that number to drop below 90. We want to be ready with IV access and potentially push dose pressors. We don't want that systolic less than 90 either. Mm-hmm. Protection loss from an airway standpoint. Airway protection loss is urgent. It's not emergent. If you lose patency and you have one of those five S's, soiled, singed, smashed, sonorous, those those are emergencies. Those are right now. Strider can't be can't be uh you know driven from from Dobbin to the hospital. You got you gotta address it. Uh, so remember to delineate BVM, apneic oxygenation, face mask. Those things can be life-saving in our traumatic brain injuries. And in the end, just like we, we, we talked about at the end of the discussion, we just have more resources in the ED most times in a level two trauma center than what you have on the street. But if you're in rural, uh, out in Big Bend, you may not. You're probably intubating this guy mm-hmm. if, he's, if he's on the highway between, you know, uh, south of Terralingua or somewhere. You're probably going to be putting the, putting the tube between his cords. And lastly... We can move the pieces here. This guy could have vomited into the curb. Mm-hmm. You could have uh, heard sonorous respirations with vomit that weren't relieved with a chin lift jaw thrust. And you move the pieces in this very complex case around, and it could be in a field intubation in a second. Agreed. No Agreed. So thanks for joining me, both of y'all. This was a, a cool discussion. I like to put myself in the hot seat a little bit. So I've got the first couple here, the first couple run reviews. I got to get Dr. Dixon to bring us a case from from the county. I've so had we all can... softballs recently. Yeah. Like I've been, I've been on a like a dry streak or something. I don't know. Maybe uh, it's you got, that whole. You got to go chart picking, man. I got to go chart picking. Yeah, I think I, the residents get all the good ones. You when, know, when yeah. I heard, when I heard this radio report come, I'm like, oh, I want that guy. That sounds like it's going to be a good one. And then I saw the guy, and I was like, oh, you're like, I'm going to put mm. this chart back. <laughs> Keep yeah. all you got it. No Man. take backs. No, <laughs> I, I, I'm too far down the road to turn around. Then it'd be a real, real wimp move. So, sure. as always, thanks everybody out there for listening. If you have ideas, thoughts, concerns, please email us podcast at mchd-tx.org. Leave us a like or a review wherever you listen to your podcast. Apple or SoundCloud or whatever platform you listen to us on, give us a five-star review. If you give us a four-star, three-star, two-star review, I promise you Dr. Dixon doesn't sleep well at night and he has bad dreams. So make sure you give us five stars, and if we're not there yet, tell us how we can get better. 
As always, we'll be back again with the new episodes. Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod, and Competech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.